What's up, witches, and welcome to Witch Space. I'm Gemini. And I'm Scorpio. And today we are talking about the book, The Casting of Spells by Christopher Penzak. And I'm really excited about this book. Just want to put that out Just there. Just like dive right into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So came out in 2016. And this is book one of the Magical Craft series. So from his website, I got, he's a witch, teacher, writer, and healer. I mean, He's got tons of books, so we already knew that. Um, it says his practice draws upon the foundation of both modern and traditional witchcraft, blended with the wisdom of mystical traditions from across the globe as a practitioner and teacher of shamanism, tarot, reiki, healing, herbalism, astrology, and Kabbalah. I love this mix, just to start off with, yeah. right? Founder of the Temple of Witchcraft tradition and system of magical training based upon the material from his books and classes. And... I love it. Like, just right there. I just love it. <laughs> of course, you know, I always start with a quote. This time mm -hmm. I do know where I got it from. It's from the intro about witchcraft. And he says, I approached it as a science. I needed some sort of direct experience. Then I got it. And I'm going to say my feeling about this book, before we even start talking about the nitty gritty of it, is that if you are a science-based person, like if you want to look at witchcraft scientifically, like we've always, we've mm -hmm. talked about it that way, this would be your book, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Right? Like I think this is as close as we're, as we're going to get, unless we see something else in the future, that is, you know, looking at witchcraft through a science. So I love that quote, and that's why I picked that to start. I, of course... Uh always find I don't know what it is about introductions I always find something I hate in the introduction okay um I don't love when books start out with these like really crazy stories um in this case I'm talking about the pregnancy story in the introduction because I just feel like it's false advertising um this story in the introduction is like you know, he's never done magic before. He goes to his first S-bat. He's invited... He, the guy who's never done magic before, is invited to do a healing spell for a woman with, like, severe complications. Like, he uses it, like, severe. Like, she's in danger. Her life and the baby's life are in danger. And then he does the spell, and surprise, everything's perfect. It all goes wonderfully. Her labor's really short. And, like, is that... A beautiful thing to have happen, absolutely. But I do not think it should be the first thing that people are reading in your book because it's not realistic, right? That's And I mean, even the way he talks about magic and, and breaks it down, he's kind of clear that that's not how it works. So why are you going to tell us this story that is wonderful and beautiful and I'm happy that it happened, but so outside the realm of what anyone else is going to experience? It, it, and I get it. I understand. You put it in the introduction. People get excited. They're like, oh, I want to read this book. But don't. Just don't. You guys, Writers in general, please skip that stuff. So I almost come to expect something like that in books when it comes to witchcraft. I hate it every time. <laughs> but I think, how can I put this? I don't think you want to hit people with, quote, unquote, the truth. Like, do you really want to hit them with, this is going to be work, this is what you have yes. to do? Well, yeah, but I think if yes, you start with a story like this, I think to some people it's like, 
oh my God, I'm reading this guy's book. I don't know. Maybe that's No, I agree with you. I think that's absolutely the vibe, but I think it's a misleading vibe. Mm. Mm. And I don't think it's fair. And I don't, like, I'm not, I don't specifically mean to be, like, calling out Christopher Penzak, because I've said this about many books that we've read. Right. So many people come into witchcraft needing help. Mm-hmm. And they want the kind of help that a guy who can, you know, cure pregnancy complications and save a woman and her baby's life can provide. Mm-hmm. And it is dangerous to give people the idea that their life is going to go like that. Yeah. No, you're right. I see what you're saying. I just, and I feel like it's so incongruous, incongruous, incongruous with even just those first couple of chapters where he's explaining, you know, very in a detailed and like concise way how all of this works. It just doesn't fit. Yeah, I can see that. I guess I just, I expect it, even though it could be wrong, but I just expect it. So I'm like, okay, so there it is. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, boom, yeah. okay. Yeah. You know? All right. So chapter one, and he starts with a saying, first you start out studying the magic, then you go about practicing the magic. Soon you realize you've become the magic. I love that because I think that's such a beautiful way to put it. Um, And I think you become the magic once you're confident enough. I don't even think it's about knowing everything. You're never going to know everything. But I think the minute that you're comfortable enough in saying, yeah, this is what I do and this is how I do it. And you don't have to constantly refer to a book to either do a candle or to do a spell or to do a ritual. Then, yeah, you've become the magic. But I think it's more like you own the magic. At that point, you realize the magic that's in you. So I think it's always been in you. I think it's a matter of getting it out. He's got a great example as he begins to talk about um, Crowley and the way he defines magic. Talking about how um, if you need $500 to pay your rent, doing a ritual to get that $500 is magic. But taking $500 out of your bank account is also magic. I wrote that down too. Such a good context for that quote that you have because it's also when you realize that you are magic, it's about realizing that every action that you take, whether mundane or magical, has magic to it. And that, yes, me going to the bank and being able to take $500 out to pay my rent is is magical. It's just less impressive than me doing a fun ritual and like, oh, $500 shows up in some unique way. Like it's, they're still magical actions. The lives, the lives, the lives that we live are still magical, whether they are the mundane aspects or the really traditional magical aspects. Yes, and I love that he states that in the beginning because I think we take the mundane parts for, um, for granted. Yes, you know, absolutely. What I also like about this book is that he does go back, he talks about Crowley, says that he defines magic. Um, you want something to occur, so you take steps to make it occur. Yeah. There you go, boom, getting that money out of the, the ATM. You took the steps, you went there, you got it, you got the money, you're good. Um, he says he's going to focus a lot in this book on the capital letters magic, right? M in magic and the big yes. W and will. Um, and he says capital W will is the part of you that is like God. Uh, okay. I really did. I disliked for a minute, but then I really did like the way that he kind of ties this idea into a variety of different religious practices. 
because while it is not necessarily something that I do, I do love this concept of like looking at the similarities between the religions of the world and like where they overlap. And so this idea of the will in a religious sense, like a Christian sense being the part of you that is like God or the will in a Hindu sense being your Dharma or the will in the traditional magical sense being your highest self. The idea that these three things, while so fundamentally different, can function in this same capacity is very interesting to me. You know, as we were talking here just now in the beginning, the one thing came to me, and that is so many of these writers, like you just said, go to different traditions, talk to you about different traditions, outside of witchcraft I'm talking about, not Mm -hmm. witchcraft traditions. And maybe we should do a Buddhist book because I feel like when it comes to being mindful, when it comes to getting to know yourself, when it comes to really, and we've said this before, being calm before doing any magic, really being able to think about it rationally, I think it might benefit some people. I don't know, throwing that out there, see if anybody in the podcast agrees, but I kind of feel like- Oh yeah, definitely let us know. Yeah, because I feel like these writers do do that. Yeah. Right. And I think it might, you know, be helpful to maybe do one of those books at one point. Um, go ahead. I, I think it's important. Okay. I think that the way that Penzac addresses this is different than the way that some previous writers have addressed it. And I do think that it is important for all practitioners to recognize where some of these things come from. Yeah. So the idea of like calling out the similarities, I think is great, but I also think it's very important. And we've discussed this before about like, he talks about Crowley in chapter one and and the gematria. That's, he, he took that from Kabbalah, from Jewish practice. And we need to be able to take time to reference like, hey, this was basically stolen and we need to use it in an appropriate way because it's not, it wasn't Crowley's place to take things from traditional Jewish mystic practice. It wasn't Gardner's place to take things from the Hindu beliefs that were bringing, that were being brought from England, from India to England in that time period. So yes, I definitely would like to talk about other religions, but I also want it to be a space where practitioners are realizing, hey, we need to also be careful with the way we talk about things because some of these things I think, you know, mindfulness and Buddhist practice has been very much freely given. There's been a lot of sort of interchange, but some of these things that we do weren't, and we just kind of absorbed them. And now they are quote unquote traditional witchcraft practice when in reality, some old white dudes got sticky fingers. (laughs) So it might be good to talk about them in that context. Like, you know, I think people should know where the stuff they do comes from. Yeah. Right. And of course, people usually point to, well, my teacher or this book or it was Scott Cunningham or it was, you know, whoever. Um, but yeah, you're right. Where did they get it from? So I think it might be yeah. good to, for people to realize it. It doesn't mean that now that you've practiced this way, you should get rid of it. Um, but at least you should have that knowledge. So if you ever speak to somebody about it, you could say, yes, yes, this was taken from this appropriated, however you want to say it. And, but it's the way I was taught. So this is why, you know, I do it with respect and blah, blah, blah. And I think just a lot of people don't have a clue, you know, not their fault. Um, He goes further 
to talk talking about the mundane to saying that a lot of the things that we do we're already doing magic whether you are a witch or not and some of the things he talks about mm-hmm. is like wishing on a star blowing on a dandelion right all these things and you make a wish with that um birthday candles what is that all about that's all magic the minute yeah. you say, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to concentrate, that's what they tell people, right? Before you blow on a dandelion, what is it that you want? And then you blow as right. hard as you can so that nothing stays in the dandelion and your wish, the spell, really, is done. Yeah. I think that's a great way to tell people um, to just be comfortable because you're already doing it. You're already doing magic. Yeah. So now it's about consciously doing magic versus unconscious magic, I think. Right? Yeah. Um. He says there's two sides of magic, speaking and listening. The speaking part of the spells, right? Yeah. See, what I like about it is that I've never thought of these things that we do in these terms. Yes. So I think even if you're not a beginner, like I got a lot out of this book, you know? The manner in which he approaches the language I think is really the the kind of crowning achievement of this book because I think that I think that we have said without saying that speaking and listening are the two sides of magic, right? We've on the podcast repeatedly emphasized this idea of like you need to you need to sit with yourself and you need to like do the research and you need to understand and that's the listening aspect, right? You need to be able to I'm imagining Disney's Pocahontas for some reason to to listen to the wind oh, okay. and you know have you ever heard the wolf cry to the blue corn moon like these moments you if you're not listening all the speaking isn't worth it but I've we have not read a book and we have not even said it in this way and it's so concise and so understandable and it's like yeah man this is a fantastic way to explain this I think that just what you just said, the words that he chooses, the way he explains it, he's got to be a fantastic teacher live. If the Probably books is. are this good, like, I just can't imagine. I think I would love I to mean, take I would a hope class. So. Yeah. He might have, like, time. Like, I always sound better in writing because I have time to, like, get rid of the stupid stuff that I say, so. Yeah, but he's been doing it for so long, I'm sure that all that is gone. That's right? true. Difference between a first-year teacher and, you know, a 10-year teacher. Yeah, that's the difference, you know, once you've yeah. been doing this for a while, you know. Um, yeah. One thing that he says that is something my mother always said to me. Uh, I'll just read what he said. We don't rely on dogma or religion, but direct experience. If we experience it, it is true for us. We don't need someone to tell us our truth. And my mother always told me, you know, when she was teaching me things, don't believe it because I told you. Like, you should never believe any of this. It's not about belief. It's about knowing. And there's a difference. Mm-hmm. So she said, you have to try things and then know that it's true. Just because I'm telling you, that's not valid. It's valid once you know it. And I feel that's what he's saying here. And I also think it's so great for somebody who's starting out to have him say, hey, if it doesn't vibe with you, then it doesn't. And if it does, then yeah. that's your truth and that's what you run with. And the fact that he uses the word um, that you rely on direct experience, that's very science-based, yeah. right? Yes. It's the experience. It's what you're doing. You're going to write it down. You're going to go back to it. That's the truth. You know? It makes me think that a witch really should have a little bit of a background in philosophy. Mm. 
because I think back to like, I had to take this class in college that was literally like an intro to philosophy class, but I hated it at the time. I thought I was too smart for philosophy. I thought that like, oh, this is useless. But now when we are getting to these books and they're talking about like, like true will or like the direct experience of truth, it makes me think of how much more I'm able to personally understand my idea of what is true because I have the language from that prior philosophy class to be like, okay, well, what, what is truth in all of these different contexts? And it's, it feels like on the one hand I'm saying this and I'm like, this feels like really kind of an asshole thing. Like, oh, you need to understand philosophy, but like you do, because I think sometimes also when you say the direct experience is your truth, like Sometimes we don't understand our experiences and you need, you need a set of tools to be able to go back through them and be like, okay, I lived it, but what does it even mean? Okay. So when you said that about your class, I went back to my freshman year (laughs) and okay. So first of all, just to cut me some slack, I was 16 when I went to college and I thought that philosophy was the most pretentious thing you could take. So I took it. Me too. My first, you know, um, semester in college. And then I became a philosophy minor. But um, yeah, it always feels kind of pretentious when people mention philosophy. I don't know why it got that. Because like you said, I think it's good for people to study different aspects. But for some reason, it's got this bad rap. The problem is, is that when... You when, when you're like a normal person, when you're not like mired in philosophy, you imagine that conversation of like, well, how do I know it's a chair? Like, what is what is a chair? And like, yeah, you sound like a fucking asshole. Like, oh, well, I'm going to systematically prove what a chair is. Like, no, I, I experience a chair. I can see a chair. I could very quickly define a chair. Like, I understand that. But as as I've aged, I've realized that like, The point of philosophy is understanding the way that language is used to create meaning. And so as stupid as it feels to be like, what is a chair? There is value in being able to break down all of these things. Otherwise you get the, the, who was it? It was either Plato or Aristotle who was like, a man is a featherless biped. And Diogenes was like, behold, a man with a plucked chicken. So... Especially in a book like this, which is so focused on language, being able to take a step back and like break that down is, it's really helpful. Yeah. But I do sound like an asshole when I say, what is a chair? Like, I accept that. That's just part of the the vibe. No, but I think that that's an easy way to get people to understand, to then go with you on this journey of what it is you want to explain. Yeah. And I think that the chair is just the beginning. Um, and you're right about communication because when I took, when I was going for my master's in integrated technology, you have to take the history of communication. And mm-hmm. the history of communication is simply going back to the Greek philosophers and coming up. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what else do I like about this? Oh, so every chapter he's got exercises. And I've come... Yes, which we, we love here. <laughs> yeah, I've come to the conclusion that if your book is about witchcraft, you don't have exercises either at the end of the book or after every chapter, I don't think I'm going to love it as much. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, and he really breaks it down. And I just think, you know, every exercise, I mean, and 
I don't know. I think that even if something was not clear in the reading, the exercises will help you to really focus on what he was saying. And that, I think, even goes back to this idea of having philosophy to understand our direct experiences. It's nice to have guided things. Yeah. It's nice to, like, it's one thing to be told, all right, go try this on your own. When you're given the the sort of steps and you're given, this is the guideline, this is what I would like you to try for this first time, the experience becomes easier to understand and to digest. Yeah. So I don't care where you are on your magical path. Um, I'd love to do the exercises here. Yeah. Team exercises for life, That which space will die on this hill. Yeah. Love it. So he talks about your magical conversation partner. Yes, he does. And, you know, you can have universe, divine mind, transcendental creator. These are the topics that he, you know, he's talking about. Specific entities, cosmic forces, or higher self. And, of course, the exercise that goes with this is fantastic. So I'm asking you, Gemini, who is your magic conversation partner? So I will admit I did not do these exercises. Okay. Um, mostly because... I was explaining to Scorpio before we got on, I lost the book in between like reading it and doing the podcast. So I had to download the Kindle. It was a whole thing, but we got here. Um, But I did love this chapter because I do think that it is important. And we've, I've talked about this before. I think it's important that you recognize what you believe about the cosmos Probably before you start messing with the energy of said cosmos. So like I have in the past, absolutely my conversation partner has been like, quote unquote, the universe. And sometimes to this day still is quote unquote, the universe. Um, I have this very, I can't get rid of it, this very like 2010, you know, we are stardust thing that I hate, but is also ingrained in me. Um, But my conversation partner sometimes is deity. You know, sometimes it's like two days ago, my husband came home and he was like, oh, I got, I figured out my project. I figured out, I got it. I know exactly what I have to do for the next step. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's, let's like pour libations for Athena. And there was, you know, a nice little moment that I had with Athena thanking her and that sort of stuff. But you don't have to only choose one. You can have more than one conversation partner, but you have to know who you're talking to. If you're talking into the void, you don't know who's listening. Yeah, and I think that this is something that I haven't seen in the books that we've read so far, the idea of your conversation partner. I think that it's almost like taken for granted that everybody already knows this. And I love that he's like, okay, we're not taking anything for granted. Yeah. Figure out who you're talking to. And for the first time, I had to think about it. Who is it that I talked to? And I realized it's deity and it's ancestors. So in here would be specific entities and what would that be? Divine mind? I don't know. Cosmic forces? Well, um, yeah, those are basically. I think for everybody, deity is going to fit in a different place. And it's all about your own personal. And that's why you read the chapter, you do the exercises. you We think critically about these things because... As fun as it is to be like, I'm a witch and just kind of like blow with the breeze, it's important. And I mean, he says it at the beginning. You study the magic, then you do the magic, then you are the magic. You got to know the answers first. Yeah. So this was just a really interesting take because it was different the way he went about it. 
He does yeah. the same thing, in my opinion. He does the same thing with divination. Yes. Because you have the fluid and the fixed. And again, I never thought of divination that way. And I think it's a great way, especially if somebody does not do divination. Because I think once you do um, a certain type of divination, it doesn't matter whether it's fluid or fixed. You know what you do, it, it's done. Yeah. But I think for somebody who's going into this, or maybe you've never picked up a certain type of divination, it's kind of neat to look at what he's talking about when he says fixed, look what he's talking about when he says fluid, and then look at what either you already do or the type that you're attracted to and then go towards those types of divination. Because I think yeah. some people do have difficulty with one form versus another, right? Um, one where it's Absolutely. more intuition and one which is more you got to really follow what's been set forth before. I really like the way in this book that he, he creates binaries in witchcraft that are not like gender based or like light and dark. Yeah. Because I think that for years the movement has been trying to get away from that. And these are really these are really good versions. Like sometimes in witchcraft you want to work with one side and the other, you want to work within a binary, but fixed and fluid is great. Like, that was, like, a, a little, like, light bulb that went off in my head. Like, it's a fantastic binary to be able to understand these two sides of that coin while not being alienating. Yeah. So if you're looking for binaries, this book is great. You should try this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing he talks about when you jump into the next chapter, he's talking about magic, right? You need intention, will, and energy. Yes. Um. What I really love is he says, before you even do a spell, imagine how you would feel if this spell succeeded. How would you feel? What would you be thinking? And I think that gives you a really good perspective of, we always talk about like, don't do a spell if you're angry, don't do a spell to go against somebody. Really think about it. Because if you think about doing the spell and you go, okay, you might have regret afterwards, but if you sit the way he says and think about yeah. if it ha actually happened, how would you feel? If you can honestly say you feel fantastic with the outcome, go for it. If you have any reservations, I think you need to go back and ask yourself why you're doing the spell. Yeah. So I love I that agree. he put that. I've never seen that before either in writing. It's very much, um, it's very much giving like vision board energy. Um, at some point, I think we need to have a conversation about the stereotypes of women and how they are just witchcraft. Huh? Because, like, I'm imagining, here's the vision in my head, right? Um, she has a pumpkin spice latte. She's sitting at her desk. She's clipping pictures from Pinterest to make a vision board. And it's all about, like, the life she wants to live in the next five years and she's imagining how happy she is with her home and her kids or with her you know fancy job or with her new master's degree and she's it's 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 something that i have seen repeatedly disparaged about women but it is absolutely exactly what he's talking about this like intention setting moment yeah. as the foundation for a spell you're right you're absolutely right. That is so, witchcraft. It doesn't necessarily have to be now, but it should be at some point I would like to talk about. Because I think a lot of the, a lot of the stereotypes that we have 
of women are just magic. Yeah, I see that now. I also really get upset with, it seems like anything women like then becomes a joke. Yes. Like pumpkin that spice is latte. Because that's what happens. Yeah. You know, now that you said pumpkin spice latte, like that's become a joke. I like, oh, you're so yeah. basic because you like, you know, whatever. And it's like, what? So. And basic is only a thing you apply to women. There's yes. no, you don't look at a guy wearing gym shorts in the middle of winter and go, oh my God, you're so basic. Like. And yet we don't say it, but I don't know about other people who identify as female. I know I do it. If I see a guy that looks a certain way. I don't want to have a conversation with this person. And I'm not talking about like in a romantic sense. I mean, like, I don't even want to be friends with you. Like, if I look at you, okay, and you look like a Chad, all right, then I know that up here, there's not really much going on. I'm pointing to my brain. So I don't really want to talk to you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I have always been drawn to people that do not... And I'm sorry, nobody, I've never been disappointed. Whenever I've looked at somebody and stereotyped them, I've been right. Of course, that could be my intuition, blah, blah, blah. That has nothing to do with how they look. But yeah, I kind of find those people kind of boring. Like, I don't know. And that's basic to me, right? And yet any woman... But I do think there is fundamentally a difference between you, the individual, looking at right dudes and being like, I don't want to hang out with those dudes and society as a whole being like women are stupid and I don't respect them yeah that's true I think women have kept it inside because I really have a hard time believing I'm the only person who does that well we don't there's not like a space this is this is a big conversation yeah this is a big conversation we have a lot of book left if you would like to hear more (laughs) conversation about women uh please let us know shoot us an email hit us up in the dms because I will talk about women forever so you just let me know you want to hear yeah let us know because yeah that sounds good it's a lot (laughs) we can't do this especially because this book is so good so i don't want to get distracted either so then he goes on to talk about will and will is like the spark that ignites the fuse of your magic and he goes on to say something that i think we've said but i don't know if i've necessarily seen it in a book he says that you can absolutely do magic for somebody else absolutely right but it would be more successful if they do it because nobody wants the thing more than the person the spell is for, right? Yeah. Somebody wants a job. Somebody wants protection. Somebody wants, I am more than willing to set them up, but I always tell people, you have got to sit with this thing because yeah. nobody wants to protect you more than you. And you know, sometimes it's a spiritual bypassing, especially like if a, if if you're doing it for someone because you love and care about them and it was your idea, then what what space are you trying to fill in yourself by being a savior, by being able to give such an intense gift? And if it's something that was requested of you by a person, why are they bypassing the effort and the energy to get the thing that they want? I think when people bypass... I'm going to say 99.9% of the time, they don't believe in their magic, right? Um, They just think, okay, if I do it, it's not going to work. It's that insecurity that I don't know where it comes from. Maybe people have told them you're not a witch or people have told them your power isn't good enough unless you do X, Y, and Z. And this person is not interested in doing X, Y, and Z. They're interested in doing ABC. 
So then they see a witch that is confident and they go, there's no way that I can do it better than that person. So I think it's about making sure people get the power back. And that's what I like about that, right? No one's going to want that job more than you because you're the one applying for it. So do the magic. So yeah, I- Because then if you're sitting and you're saying, I don't think that I can do this, I'm going to ask so-and-so, sit. Sit with that a little longer. Go figure out for yourself what is your why. Why is that a problem? But also, uh, hello, witches, check your ego. Sometimes uh, you be doing spells for other people because it makes you feel powerful. And do you really need to be doing that when you could be maybe acting more as a guide and less as a witch <laughs> in that yeah, case? Yeah, but I think sometimes witches get excited too, you know? I, like, yes, you know, and I'm not saying we can't do it, yeah. but there is... There is a little ledge there that you can step off of where it becomes an ego trip. And if I'm going to tell the people not doing the spells to sit with their insecurity, we have to tell the people doing the spells to sit with their ego. Yeah, I hear you. You know, he does talk about getting permission as well. That's later on in the book. Yes. Doing a spell. He says, unless the person is incapacitated, obviously, right? And you don't have anybody else to ask and... You're like, okay, I'm going to do this because he says, then you ask what? You ask the universe first. You ask somebody other than yourself for permission. So that also means meditating with this idea. Like you said, am I doing this because I have an ego or I'm really concerned for this person? Like, you know, I I want to put as much positive energy in there, you know, for this person. Um, Yeah. So I like that he does it. I like that there is that step back, that there's never just go for it. Just go do whatever you want. So, um yeah. And I didn't really think about the ego thing with witches, but And again, it's it's not like I'm not I don't ever want anyone listening to the podcast to be like, "Well, Gemini's calling us out." But it is important that we cuz sometimes you sit down and you're like, "No, there is no ego here. I'm doing this because I really truly care about this person and I I want to help them as much as possible." But yeah. And I'm sure every single person listening can think of a time where they did a spell that maybe they didn't need to or that made them, you know, they got that itch like, ooh, I'm going to do this and it's going to be amazing. Like yeah. sometimes you just have to, you have to think about it. Your ego is not a bad thing. It's a thing you have to be aware of. Yeah, I agree. Um, and also about asking somebody else for for help. Again, and I know I've said this in another podcast, Um if I'm upset, if somebody I love is in the hospital, I don't think I'm the best person at that point. Once I've mm-hmm. calmed down, I'll do it. But if I need immediate help, I'm going to call on my sisters, right? Yeah. I'm going to call on people, right? And I know I've, I've reached out to you on occasion and just said, you know, help me with this. And then when I'm in a good frame of mind, I'm going to add my energy. Because again, nobody cares about this more than me. But... Right. I also recognize that there are people that are very good at what they do. And if I'm not in a good state of mind, my energy is going to be all over the place. Then I need somebody who, again, is removed from the impact of the situation to kind of help bring that energy in so that when I'm calm, I can do it. I think people should think about that too. If you feel like you're upset, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to another witch. But always know that the reason you're doing it, you're conscious of the fact that you're too invested and they are not always con- contribute to that energy let them yeah. set it up for you let yourself calm and then you add to it because that's going to be stronger even though the other people are calm 
that yours is going to be stronger once you're able to. But that doesn't mean that you have to wait, right? You can always ask for help. I think that a really important thing to mention, and I think something that is absolutely reflected in this book and the way that it is constructed, when someone tells you to stop and think, they're not telling you that you are wrong. And I think a lot of times, I'm saying this from experience, I have, I do this constantly. When somebody tells me, hey, what, think about that before you do it. Or are you sure you want to do it that way? I see that as a challenge. And then I'm pissed and I'm like, absolutely, I'm going to do that. What are you talking about? When in reality, being thoughtful is good for you. If you are thoughtful and you come out with the same conclusion and you're like, yeah, I'm still going to do this, that's fine. You do not have to change your mind, right? The exercises in this book, the descriptions in this book are not to change your mind. They are to illuminate your mind. And so, you know, us sitting here and talking about this, I think that like healing magic can be really, can be triggering to some people because it's so important and it feels so necessary. We're not saying don't do it. Penzac is not saying don't do spells. He's saying you need to be thoughtful about the choices you make. And I don't, I don't think that that is a challenge. I think we've spent a lot of time in a society that makes us think that thoughtfulness is a challenge, but it's not. Yeah, we have to deconstruct a lot of what we've been taught so that we can think differently, for sure. Because like taking a little bit longer isn't gonna, it, it's not a problem. Waiting until you've calmed down is not a bad thing. Right. It doesn't, it's not gonna make you less potent as a witch. It's not gonna make your spell less good. It's not gonna make you a worse person. It just means the time took a little longer. Yeah. Energy. He says yes. it, it is both the potential energy to fuel it and the method to direct it. And he has, says there are four categories of energy, personal, terrestrial, celestial, and divine. I don't know that I've heard it necessarily split up into four. Usually you, you think about like the earth, you think about, of course, you're using the crystals, you're using the herbs, you're using right um, your personal energy, you're using, you're, you're talking to the divine, you're talking... But I don't think I've ever split it up this way. Like, I think we know this, but we don't actually talk about it in these terms. And I like these terms. I typically wouldn't split up terrestrial and celestial. I would I would do, like, personal and then, like, physical mm. and then divine. Oh, I like that. Um, I don't dislike the the breakdown. I think that it, it aligns with a lot of... You know, what I see on like the Instagrams or in the community, I think that this is the way a lot of witches use these energies, even if they're not defining it this way. I like it. I like, I think I'm a big fan of separating divine energy. I think it's important that that be considered and, you know, dealt with on a different level. So being able to sort of say these are the different types of energy and this is the kind of vibe of them, that's good. Not everybody's going to want to work with divine energy. Right. Chapter four, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this chapter because I feel like Gemini is going to have the hottest of takes with this. But chapter four is trans techniques. 
Now, he says spells work due to the energy of the spellcaster, not necessarily of the spell itself, right? You can yes. have just as powerful of a spell using a poppet than you would a candle than you would whatever, right? The tools, right, the candle, the poppet, um, they're meant to have the practitioner focus. If I am focusing on you, what am I focusing on? Am I focusing on healing you? Which way do I do it better? It, it's, it's all for me. It's all for my benefit so that my energy can come out. Mm-hmm. And he says that one way is to have trances, get into trances, because a trance is calming. I kind of feel like he, like for me, I would substitute trance for mindfulness. I think mm-hmm. that's more important than saying trans, but for him, it's trans. So I love it. Yeah. Because I think trans calls back to this like pre-Christian idea yeah. of paganism that, that people love to hang on to. Um, it calls back to a more indigenous practice mm-hmm relying on you know the the medicines in the environment around you um i like the vibe i i i don't know how trance works in a modern american setting and i have adhd and as much as i would love to like like when you say trance, the image that I get is like a deeply guttural one that I'm like, yeah, that sounds cool as hell. I want to try that. But like that's it's not it's not easy. I wouldn't put trance in a book for beginners. Like I think what worries me is that okay, there's different types of meditative techniques, right? Hypnotizing yourself, which he says you could do. Doing a formal ritual, which is true. You get so caught up in the ritual that you are in yes. a trance like state. Repetitive action, same thing, right? That could be chanting something over and over again. Uh, Fasting, okay. So I'm just going to read them all and then I'm going to talk about what I find troubling. Fasting, sleep, isolation, sex, pain, and intoxication. So I have a problem with some of these. If somebody has an eating disorder, I don't think fasting would be good. If somebody, pain, you know, somebody could be drawn to that for all the wrong reasons, yeah. Okay. Intoxication, the same thing. If somebody has, you know, a predisposition to becoming somebody who is, you know, a junkie, an alcoholic or something like that, it just worries me, like you said, in a, in a beginner book, because I feel like there's a whole bunch of mindfulness and, and healing and, you know, self-awareness before you jump into some of these that I feel that could be really harmful to people. I am reading a book, and I do not... I think it's cutting through spiritual materialism, Mm -hmm. but I don't quite remember. Um, But there's this concept of, like, getting sick because you do too much meditation. And it... Yeah, it overwhelmingly happens to Americans and, like, uh, non-native Buddhists. Because when you're raised in a culture that is sort of wrapped up in these Buddhist ideas, you understand more inherently this idea that there is no goal to meditation, right? But a lot of times when 
and I, I'm going to say white people because the examples that I've seen are about white people, um, when white people get involved in like becoming monks or like really committing to, to Buddhist meditation and, and trying to achieve nirvana, they see it as a goal. And so they meditate and they meditate and they meditate and you can literally make yourself sick. You get dizzy, you get nauseous, you might get migraines. And the way to not be sick is you have to stop meditating for a while. So part of me likes this because it does feel like very traditional, right? I think that like monks and nuns have been doing things like this for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. I think that it calls back to an idea that we kind of hold really close to us, this like pre-Christian pagan ideology. But I agree it is, this is, this is not a beginner concept and it's, it's not even an expert concept. Like this is its own separate thing. If you feel called to trance work, you need to be working with experts in trance because I mean, even guided by Tibetan monks who have been meditating their whole lives White people still manage to get themselves sick trying to meditate correctly. So it just feels like it feels really cool. I'm not going to lie and say it doesn't feel cool, but it's not safe. Yeah. I feel a lot of these options are not safe. And, and you know, it's interesting that when you said that about Americans, yeah, I think that Americans take things a different way. And we might, we might be more messed up than the rest of the world, so maybe we need... To take Might a step be. back, yeah. Um, all right, chapter five, techniques of spell casting. He says, everyone needs a technique in their spell work. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. He says, why? Because technique is ultimately the mechanism for you to direct energy. So it's all about how are you going to get the best out of yourself. Yes. Never heard it that way. So I really like it. Um, so, I would say, mm-hmm. I don't think you need a technique but I think you need to understand technique. Nice, yeah. Yeah. Because I've done, you do, like, I don't do only candle spells. Right. I think it's really funny because I'm looking at, okay, so the ones he talked about, we can talk about them. Direct petition, incantation, correspondence, contagion, symbol, and ritual. And I think we've done all of these. I think witches do all of these. I think it's about being conscious of what you're doing. I think the one that we probably... I mean, I don't use the most. I think you do this more, is contagion. Yeah. Right? And for people who don't know, it's basically two things have touched. Um, So once they've touched, they're always touching. So if one thing has energy, the other thing now has the energy because they've touched. Right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. I magically touch a lot of things together. Yeah. So I think that, have have you ever thought about it as contagion? Spellcasting? Well, no, because first of all, that word is not a vibe. Yeah, it sounds wrong. It is not. A, like, I understand it, but I don't like it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that... I guess my problem is I just don't think it's this easy. I, I almost think that you could break down these magical techniques into even smaller bits. Mm. And so, you know, the the umbrellas are good, but... You could umbrella this in like 16 different ways. So I, again, as a beginner, I think this is great. It gives you a rundown and then you can kind of delve into each technique and maybe branch it off in your own way. But like when you come at it as less of a beginner, 
it can be a little, um, it might grate on you a little bit because you'll, I felt like as much as it was correct what he was saying, it wasn't the way I conceptualized it. And I had to sit back and be like, okay, well, why do I feel like this? Hmm. Well, I also think in 2021, contagion definitely means something. Yeah. So I yeah, think, not a vibe. Yeah, I think maybe <laughs> if he was writing this book, I wonder if he would even use contagion anymore because, because of that. But for somebody who's not a beginner, I love that it's split up this way. It just makes us focus and really think about what we're doing, right? So when we tell people, you know, you have to do the work, this is the work I think that we're talking about, right? Really delving into every aspect. And again, it's given yeah. me things to think about that I love, right? Um, I like that um, direct petition also. He very, like, is specific that it doesn't have to be deity. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of times when you hear petition, that kind of is sort of like the witchy way to say prayer sometimes. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm petitioning. So it's like, you're praying. That's, you're praying. That's a prayer. You're praying. That's what praying is. Um, but if you're directly petitioning like that higher self, that will, that's not the same thing as a prayer. I think it's a good, uh, a good analysis. Yeah. So he talks about the tides of the moon and the sun, right? The moon phases yes. versus the sun holidays. Um, but he says something. The flow of magic is good to know, but which power is now power? You don't have to wait for a phase. You don't have to wait for a holiday. If you want to do something, you do it. The power is yours. It's not in these holidays. It's not in the moon. Yeah. So I really appreciated that as well. I think that that's another one of those intention moments because if you're sitting down with your spell and you're real and you're like really aligning with that intention mm -hmm. that'll be one of those moments where you realize like oh you know what i would like to do this on this holiday or with this moon phase um and it can make things more powerful because of the intention but it's not because like you don't have to wait every single time you make that decision because it aligns with the power that you are enacting at that moment. And the intention magic becomes the spell magic at some point. Mm, yeah. Writing petition spells. So, you know, when I started reading this, I thought about Silver. And her idea yes. that some religions grovel. So that's, you know, that's not for her. And I love how he talks about spells as prayers. How it's not about... He says so many people put the onus on the other side when we have to realize what we're doing on this side. So I kind of feel it's a nice response to Silver and the idea that prayer is groveling. It's like yeah. it's not groveling at all. A petition is not groveling ever, right? The witch still has the power. So I love that he goes into that. Um, and he talks about, you know, the old ways. He just says ancient spells. He doesn't go about how far back they go, right? Those are the ones that yeah. maybe they, they put too much focus on the other side doing the work versus this side. And then he points to indigenous practice and native practice, traditions, right? Yes. And how they call to spirit. But he also talks about petitions are found in Greek, Roman, and Egyptian traditions as well. So it's yeah. really not about groveling. Um he says when you do a, uh, an effective petition, you announce who you are, you evoke, right? You call the powers. Mm -hmm. You have intent. That's the meat of the situation. You have the conditions. Here are the stipulations, right, that you're putting forth. 
not the other side, you're doing it. And of course, gratitude, just saying thanks, which just seems like normal. I don't think that seems like groveling. I think it's just you've called something and you're thanking. It is a very traditional Greek structure mm. that he has okay. in this, which I, I mean, I loved. But basically when you do prayers to a Greek deity, you call them, you evoke them with their titles. Um, and that conditions and gratitude is really based on, it's this concept of charis, K-H-A-R-I-S, which is like a, a reciprocal relationship a relationship that you have built with the deity. So you'll, and, and those are the things that you're doing. It's, it's your side of the thing. So if I was to petition Athena to help my husband figure out his project at work, I would say to her like, hey, you know, if you liked all that stuff that I did, if, if that was cool, then could you please do this? Because we're a team. Right. It's about a mutual respect. It's not about me getting on my knees and being like, Athena, I need you to do I need you to do this for me. Right. Right. And I think, ooh, okay. I'm gonna do this. I think that that's the point of Christian prayer as well. Okay. I think that there it has absolutely been a place where like that's been corrupted, but I don't think at any point that Christian prayer is groveling because there are a series of rules that God has given to say, if you do these things, you are my people and you will enter into heaven and you do those things. And then you pray to God and say, thank you for giving me a place in heaven. Also, would you help me out with some other stuff? I've been good. Right. <laughs> like it's not, yeah. there's just cause you, genuflect at church doesn't mean that it's groveling right and when you think about the confessional this idea that you have reflected and you have recognized what you have done so i need to go make things right like hey my guy right yeah this is what i have done i know that this is wrong right and that the priest is able to then have that negotiation he's the middleman okay you've done this yeah so now you have to do say so three hail marys right. and for all fathers and then you're good and then yeah. You go to church and you say, thank you so much. You're living this life. Please help my, my kid, right? You're right. Yeah. There's a give and take when it comes to Christianity, um, Catholicism. I don't think everybody plays by those rules. But then again, when it comes to witches, a lot of witches don't play by the rules either, right? So right. that's where you have a lot of false nonsense. But I think for the people who take it very seriously, especially when you think of people that go to church every day, not just Sunday, not just Yes. Easter and Christmas, right? These people that are going all the time, they are very mindful of the lives that they're living. And like you said, there's a contract. You want me to live this way? That's cool. I've done this. I go to church and I tell you, look at everything I've done. I need a little bit of help with this. So, yeah, I think that's And this spot works. On. It works even if you're petitioning yourself. Even if you are the kind of witch whose direct petition is for your higher self to help you or assist you in things, you you should have a contract with yourself. Yeah. The higher self has an expectation of who you're going to be and you are aiming to live in alignment with that higher self. Yeah. I agree. I'm like suddenly so into petition spells. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that he does here that I have not seen, this I definitely have not seen anywhere, okay? 
we talk about correspondences and we talk about, well, what color candle should I use and what color yes. glitter. It's never occurred to me when I'm writing a spell, the color of the paper and the color of the ink. Because it's true, if I know the correspondences to these colors and I write a spell for something and I use the right colors, aren't I, I'm not, come on, I'm, I'm strengthening the spell, not because necessarily the paper and the pen, like he said, but it's in me. I know what these colors mean. It's just never occurred to me to write them that way. And what a beautiful way to get yourself into a quote unquote trance by writing out the spell and really being conscious of the color correspondences and how the mix of, you know, one color on top of the other color will really help to make your spell. I freaking fell in love with that. And I said, that's it. I own so many pens. I don't own a lot of color paper, though. this is only going to make me... Oh, my God, girl. I am... What? I, I've got probably 15 different, like, Tombow markers. I've got packs of different colored paper. Oh. I mean, I'm, I'm screwed. Yeah. I'm screwed. I feel like you're going to get this into this thing. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I want to go out and get all these different colors. And yeah, I love this. And then I can just like yeah. stick that in my book of shadows. I can just like attach it to stuff. I, just, I love yeah. it. Um, okay. Ethics and morals and spell casting. And I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. Um, yes. So he says that old witches lived by the rule of three. Right. And a lot of witches say, well, I'm not Wiccan. So it doesn't apply to me. Yeah. But he does say modern witches you got to be willing to pay the price of your actions. So he really does believe, and, you know, it makes sense. For every action, there's a reaction. So, yeah, it's not necessarily a threefold law or anything like that. But modern witches know you don't do things lightly. There's going to be, you have to pay the piper at some point. So I am on, somehow, um, gentle parenting TikTok. And gentle parenting TikTok is this idea that you don't um, you don't let like your your personal anger and frustration and fear get involved when you're parenting your child, um, and you only give like consequences that make sense. So if a child like spills milk everywhere, the consequence is we're gonna clean up the milk. Yeah. Right. If a child is like hitting you. Okay, well, the child has to go somewhere away from you, right? In a, not not a timeout, but you have to play in your playpen or you have to play in your room because it's not safe for you to hit people. Um, and that hit me like a ton of bricks as a witch because the consequences of your actions will follow directly from the action. And I think sometimes we're so afraid of like, I'm going to do this spell and then I'm going to get a curse or some, I'm going to get hexed or, you know, I'm going to have bad luck. The consequences of your actions are going to flow directly from the action you take. If you spill milk, you now have to deal with cleaning up that milk. So if you do a spell that is malicious towards another person, Okay, well, maybe the consequence is just that that person, like, doesn't fuck with you anymore and is mean to you. And now you have to deal with that negative energy towards you. If you're doing a spell that is, you know, to draw in abundance, are you responsible with your money? Right. Like, the consequences of your actions yes. in, in the real world just come from the action. 
And I think for so many of us, we were raised with like getting grounded or time out or like getting your PlayStation taken away that the idea of natural consequences doesn't always stick. And so we see this idea of like, well, the consequences are going to be crazy. It's going to be so bad. It's the rule of three. Everything come back. Maybe the consequences follow from what you did and it just feels so much bigger because you didn't think about what the consequences would be. Which is also part of thinking about how would you feel when the spell comes true? Right. Right. What's going to happen? One thing he says that I really, I freaking love this. He suggests you only do magic for things you would take responsibility for in the real life. Yes. Right? Real life and magical life are separate. Everything yeah, happens. Yeah, he literally proved it to us. Yeah. It happens in real, everything's happening in real life. So whatever you do, which is going back to what you're saying, right? This whole idea of whatever you do, you're going to have to clean up the spilled milk in real life, not in some fantasy yeah. magical world right here. You got to take care of your mess. So I think that's important. I think that that's a great thing that he tells people because you can do absolutely anything you want, but just be aware of that. I think also that that is a great place thematically, having gone through the text, coming to the end of our podcast. Magic is actions. Yeah. And you have to live with the consequences of your actions. Yeah. And that's not a threat. Oh, right. Yeah. We're not we're not telling you you're wrong, but that is the contract that you signed becoming a witch. Yeah. You will magic is action and you will deal with the consequences of those actions. So let's just finish up the book. That's the consequences of our actions. We spoke so much that now we have to go through this book. Yeah, we gotta power through. So okay. <laughs> um he talks about spell checking. And I, I love that. As a teacher, I just love the idea of spell checking. Is the spell too vague? Right? Yes. Always go over and say, I specifically want X. Is my wording, is what I am putting into this exactly what I want to happen? Because if not, that's, I think yeah. that could be another reason why things don't go right. You've just kind of left it vague. I want, you know, something. Well, something and then nothing, right? Um, yeah. He talks about psychic writing, which I really like. The idea of writing one word or phrase. And imprinted with specific psychic energy like you could write safe and put that somewhere in your car or your home right so i love this idea of like little almost like mini spells but that have like a powerful impact well and psychic writing is so similar to sigil work that Mm -hmm. i think that it's kind of i almost feel dumb for not having thought of that as an option because if it's just like slightly fewer steps for the same vibe yeah um I, I do a sigil, like, with my hand over my car when I go to travel. Like, I have something that I do for, like, safe travel. Um, he talks about incantations, with complete with samples. So if you want to see some examples of incantations, he's got that. He talks about drawing down the moon, which, okay, just surprised me because all the creepy gardener bits are in it, right? Yeah. Like, okay. Um, and then we get to Psalms and Hail Marys, which are quite magical, he says, and used in spellcrafting. And yes, there is a facet of traditional witchcraft that uses Psalms. I, I got to be honest, because I love this book so much, I'm going to take a look at them like closely. I don't think I feel comfortable using them. I don't feel comfortable using anything from Christianity. you know. And it's funny because a lot of people who are brujos and brujas, 
um, they do use Christianity and they feel that yeah. that's part of their magic. And I just kind of feel, eh, that's part of the colonizer's magic. Like, I don't want that. Like, that's never been a part yeah. of my practice because I just feel like if I am looking at Taino practices or I'm looking at my people, yes, my people were colonized, but I don't want to do that. That's that To me, that's somebody else's magic. It's not mine. So... Yeah, I think it's important that everyone be considering that for themselves. I know that there are some Italian practitioners who do utilize that sort of stuff in a very similar way mm-hmm. because I'm this is kind of air quotes because by the time Italian folk magic was a thing, like Christianity was pretty in- entrenched. Yeah. So I, I don't really want to call it a colonizer thing, right. but that's kind of how they view it is like, okay, well, my folk magic was based on christian domination of this area do not just do the psalms and hail marys from the book because it's in the book right right he's put all this energy into making sure your intentions are good don't just pick something up because like it's it's like getting a spell off the internet without thinking about it right just because something's there for you you don't have to use it but i think if you're like me somebody who's never used them never uttered those words I think it is interesting to go, okay, here's somebody who's who knows his stuff. There's absolutely no doubt that he knows what he's doing. Maybe I'll take a look at it just to take a look at his side, just to take a look at what he's talking about. Yeah. doesn't mean that I'm going to incorporate them. So I think that that's what I also like about the fact that he included them. He talks about magical spells in history. He talks about grimoire tradition. And he gives you a ton of online sources in this book. Which we love. Yeah. I, two thumbs, two clawed thumbs up. For me, <laughs> I think this book is fantastic. And I think it really, you know, especially if you have listened to our podcast from the beginning and we went through the older books and I'm sure we'll go back to some older books in the future, but there's something about coming to the present. 2016 can be considered the present. Um, yeah. It's just so refreshing, right? There's a consciousness there about where things come from, where this writer yes. got them from. There is real thought put into it. He's not trying to create a religion the way someone like Gardner did, who was trying to convince you that I'm the authority, I know everything. It's not like that. Um, It's just very thoughtful, very now, and very clear cut. I have no doubt that he's a great teacher because I feel like the way he split things up here, the way- Was so unique and interesting. Yeah, that I feel like if I ever have the opportunity, I would definitely take a workshop or a class with this person because I think that- He's phenomenal. So that was my take on this book. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I I like any text that makes me think about philosophy. So yeah. definitely, definitely suggest it. And I think that a lot of the concepts that he presents are valuable, even if we don't use them as like exactly as he uses them. I think that the the manner in which he asks you to think about magic is good. Yeah. And I think that if if you've been practicing for a while and you're like, well, what does a book like this have to offer? For me, I felt that it it made me think about my practice in a different way. I liked the way he categorized things. I feel like I am going to use some of that, right? When I start to think about my spell casting. So I think that I think anybody can use this. I agree with what you said about the trance. Maybe that's not something that should have been in this book because I think it's also a really good book for beginners. 
Yeah. You know, I always tell people to go back and read the older stuff. But if you want to really start thinking about who you are as a witch to start off with, I think this is a great first book. And he says it's book one. Yep. I could definitely see why this would be a place to start. Yes. You know, I wouldn't mind reading another one of these in the series, you know? Yeah. To see what else he has. I agree. I think it's fantastic. So, yay. Yay. So, as we wrap up, just want to say the next episode, which is our, it's before Samhain, but it's our Samhain episode. I think people are really going to like, we have a special interview with somebody and that's all we're going to say. I'm very excited about it. I can't wait for everybody to hear it. I know. Me too. Like, I just want to say everything, but we won't. But check Instagram. Maybe we'll just leave a little something there when it gets closer so that you guys have an idea of who it could be. Thank you so much for listening. You guys are the most amazing audience. Um, Please keep reaching out on email and through Instagram. We love hearing from you. Thank you to Sean McShane for our intro and outro music. And remember, if you're following the moons, you're following us.